before you get there, I should probably address why are we in the book of Mark. We're bang in the middle of a series called Jesus Overall, which we're doing in, the, like, in August, where we're just going through a series of encounters between Jesus and ordinary people um, and seeing a lot about his character, his motives, and his mission on earth. Um, and today we're jumping into a passage where we see uh, Jesus as our healer and someone who has authority over sickness and death. So I'll just read. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him, And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard heard the reports about Jesus and had came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child, the child isn't dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know about this, or no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. Um, Great story, radical stuff going on. Um, If you've ever had the chance to read through the book of Mark, um, it's basically an account of all the things Jesus uh, said and did, um, with the ultimate aim of declaring that Jesus was the Son of God. Um, And although some of us may flinch at the idea of authority or someone being in command, At the beginning of Mark, Mark calls this good news, he calls this the gospel. Because if it's true, it's through him we can find healing and salvation. Now last week, Jeremy, who isn't here, but um, last week he went through the end of chapter 4 where we find that crazy story of Jesus calming the sea, having control over nature itself. And with what all that told us about who Jesus is and how through the storms of our life um, we can have faith in him, which is the antidote to fear, as Jeremy said. But moving on, 
we find this incredible story of faith and healing. And just in the prior chapter, just a bit of context, Jesus has cast out a demon out of a man into some pigs. So he's in the zone, and he's uh, ready to go. Um, And he comes to two people who are brought together by their common human needs. So you have a man and a woman. Uh, One is quite wealthy, the other is quite poor. You have Jairus, who's the leader of the synagogue. So he's well-respected, well-admired. You have... This woman who's, um, who's been suffering for this, with this med- medical condition for 12 years, and she's actually ostracized from society as a result because of her condition. And there's this contrast of the ruler and the outcast, but both needing Jesus. One was in, an, was, uh, was in a very urgent sense of need. His daughter was um, on the verge of death, and he's in absolute despair. And this woman has had this prolonged issue with her health for 12 years, and um, it's impacted every part of her life, including socially. So money, rank, status, it was all irrelevant. Um, They both needed Jesus. They both needed a solution. And I'm hoping this passage will speak to us today as it spoke to me, because then, as is the case now, um, we've all got issues, haven't we? Um, From the very physical, some of us may have physical issues with our body, which have been hampering us and hindering us for many years. There's problems of the mind, Um, Depression is huge at the moment within our society, whether that's because we now know more about it or it's just because there's something in particular going on with us. Or actually, um, there's a problem of sin, which affects all of us. And and in particular, um, the problem of doing stuff that we don't want to do, but which we continue doing and which we can't stop. And um, for some of us, it even may be the case that um, none of the above really apply. Life is going fairly well and uh, your job's going well, your relationships are going well, and you don't feel that there's any real fundamental problems or issues with your life. But even then, Jesus' message of healing um, and of renewal, life renewal, I think, is really central to all of us. But even at the outset, I'm aware of some skepticism. So um, earlier this Tuesday, I went for a late-night kebab, as you do in Essex, if you're from there, as I am, with a bunch of guys. Um, and they were, we were talking about what we're going to be doing this weekend, and I told them that I was going to be talking at church, which they all found quite amusing. Um, and they asked me, what are you going to be talking about? I ran them through the passage, and then there was a wave of like, laughter and cynicism and a rolling of eyes. And you know, how is this even possible? How, do you, how can you even believe that? How can God even, or does God even exist, first of all? But like, how can he, if he does, do what you're saying in this passage? And there's a general skepticism within our culture um, about stories like this, that God could heal somebody physically, quite radically like we've seen, or spiritually from the inside out and change a person for the rest of their lives. And perhaps part of this is because as time has gone on and we've made medical and technological advancements, it's deemed that um, we as human beings are self-sufficient right, to um, solve our own problems. It's almost this sort of thinking that um, as rational, developed human beings, we've got the answers to our own issues and we can deal with them. And we don't need someone from the outside telling us what to do. Whether that's from the, through the medium of politics, um, science, philosophy, um, we feel we have the answers. And I think sometimes we even look at human history as one where we've been brought out of the dark ages, where we used to believe in um, religion and superstition, but now we've sent people to the moon and we've achieved all sorts of things. And as a result... We don't need God. But there's a limit. Um, if you look into the passage of the, the unclean woman, you'll find that she had tried many physicians, right? She spent all her money, but she grew worse in her condition rather than better. 
And on one hand, perhaps it's just simply because if you're a first century doctor in Israel, you probably don't have much of a clue what's going on with this bleeding woman, right? And it's probably beyond your capabilities to do anything about it. But 2,000 years on, I still think this rings true for us today, in that despite all the developments we've made, all the advancements we've made in our lives and generally in society, there are still loads of people in London who are broken and who have issues. So most of you will know walking around London, people who are well-presented, really slick, really articulate, have issues right at the depths of their hearts, which are tearing them apart and which they haven't found a solution for. But I think another reason that there is a skepticism towards healing in general and the miraculous um, is perhaps the perception of sort of faith healers within certain charismatic circles or other faiths, right? Where you find people who take advantage of vulnerable individuals, often in exchange for money, and it's often seen as quite sleazy. And often people equate this with what it means to be a religious person, that you're gullible, that you're taken in by superstition, and that ultimately... Um, it's, all, it's not true. It's all lies. There's a guy called um, Darren Brown, who's an atheist and an illusionist. Um, he's often on Channel 4 quite a lot. Um, and he was on a radio show a couple of months ago talking about his latest social experiment slash tour called Miracles, where he was basically going across the country purporting to be a faith healer, and the audience at the time wouldn't know this, and he would call people up who had physical problems with their bodies, and he would, through a range of psychological techniques, persuade them that they had been healed. And it was obviously only later, that they'd, when they went home, that they'd find that their broken arm wasn't actually healed and uh, there were still issues. But he was using this basically, um, <clears throat> sorry, basically using this as a, as a demonstration to show that all claims of healing are all in the mind. This is what he says. And that it can all be explained and therefore accounts that we see in the Gospels and we see in the Bible can't be trusted because all of this is just a lie and it's there to take people in. But I believe when we think about Christianity and we think about what Mark's writing here, I think what we, what we are dealing with is absolutely true and there's no doubt about it. One, it's the, one uh, reason I think about this is because when we read the Gospels and we read what Mark's writing about and the circumstances he's writing about generally, um, I think we, can, we find a lot of interesting things. So, For example, if we think about um, how the claims to healing that Mark makes isn't the most outrageous thing he's actually claiming. So if you think about the crucifixion, for example, uh, this is the claim for anyone who doesn't know that Jesus died on a cross for our sins on our behalf. But if you were a, a Jewish or Greek person at the time, looking, open up a manuscript and looking at this story or, or hearing it from somebody, it was frankly ridiculous or offensive for someone to claim that God would subject himself to a death penalty normally associated with criminals. It was not the sort of thing you'd make up if you wanted to bring somebody into your new religion. Or the resurrection, for example. This is the claim that Jesus rises from the dead um, and goes up back to heaven again. Um, and the story goes that the first people to realize that the tomb was empty were women. Now, again, if you were writing or reading at that time about these accounts, at that time, women were not even allowed to stand up in court and um, their testimony was deemed quite unreliable. So again, it's not the sort of thing you'd put in if you wanted to make up a story about this new religion and this new God. Ultimately, I think we've got to trust that what these people were writing were true, and they were writing what they saw, and what they saw actually happened. But even more importantly, I think what makes this different from what uh, Darren Brown and others are referring to is how the miracles are not even the main point. They were in fact pointing to something far greater than the spectacle of somebody being healed of a disease or being raised from the dead. They were pointing to Jesus himself, 
they were pointing, um, well, people are already stunned by his teaching. People are amazed by what he's saying. He's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be somebody that nobody had really claimed to be, to be before, especially in this context. But in performing these miracles, he's confirming his authority as God, not simply as a common faith healer or as an illusionist, but as a personal God who has compassion on these people and wants to heal their hearts. Um, in the Psalms, uh, there's a, a writer refers to Jesus in this way. This is, this is obviously written before Jesus arrives, but it's, it's writing about what the Messiah, what Jesus would do when he comes. And it says this, it says, um, I think it's in, this is in chapter 143. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. And I think when we take Jesus at his word, and we believe who he says he is, I think a number of things become really apparent. So, firstly, Jesus is more powerful than our shame and disgrace. So, from verse 25, you find a story, or Jesus has already been told about Jairus' daughter dying, being dead. He's making his way there um, with this huge crowd following him. And in the crowd, there's this woman. For 12 years, she's been suffering with this particular type of bleeding, which meant that she was unclean ceremonially. There are a bunch of laws in Leviticus which talk about being unclean, and bleeding is a big no-no, basically. And nothing had helped. She had gone to physicians, she had tried doctors, and none of them were able to help her. And it was a big deal because she was cut off from Jewish society. She was ostracized. People wouldn't talk to her. But uh, she had seen Jesus heal people. And when Jesus healed people, uh, they seemed to get better. Or when he touched people, they seemed to get better. But up until this point, whenever um, Jesus healed somebody, they normally told him what their problem was, like Jairus did. But because of the shame and embarrassment attached to her own condition, she felt that she couldn't go up to Jesus and tell, her, tell him what her problem was. And I think this element of shame actually speaks to all of us to some extent. We all have that part of us that we don't want others, other people to see, right? That um, embarrassing illness the shameful past event, the um, ongoing present battle of sin or the humiliating failure um, in our past. There are stuff that we don't want people to know about and we keep in. Thinking about this more broadly, um, on a societal level, shame is actually often used to um, force people to change their behavior or to massage ourselves on the back about the past. So I often think about Britain, and for people who understand or know the history, there is sort of a, a cultural shame around empire where G, uh, Jesus, where we, <laughs> where we uh, owned half of the world and did a lot of bad things to people, like slavery, for example. And there's sort of a cultural shame around that. People don't like that past about us. Or, moving it to today, um, about poverty. So Britain's like the fifth richest economy in the world, yet we have still loads of homeless people on the streets, and people have issues with poverty. And there's a shame about why we can't actually deal with that. And there's a, there's a cultural shame around that. Or the big one, I think, is maybe climate change. There's a big move around um, recycling, eating more healthily, conserving the planet, looking after ourselves. But if you're not really on board of that, or you just can't be bothered with all of that, um, there's a sort of a cultural stigma around that, isn't there? Like, you're not getting on board of the plan. You're not doing what you're supposed to do. And generally, people are happy to take this on the chin, right? It's a cultural shame. We all bear this together. But there's something about personal shame about the things you have done yourself or the things done to you, which you often can't come to terms, you often can't come to terms with, and you don't want anybody knowing about. I recently listened to a, 
a TED talk by Monica Lewinsky, which is quite random, I know. <laughs> um, this is what I do in my spare time, clearly. <laughs> um, and she became famous, or infamous, as it were, like 20 years ago, when she had an affair with Bill Clinton, and it was huge. He almost lost his job because of it. But in her talk, she painfully recalls how she tapes of her conversations at the time, uh, which were recorded and she didn't know, were released to the public. And she recalls about how this made her deeply ashamed. The darkness which she had been hiding her in her life suddenly became this amplified, permanent stream of content which anyone could now access. It's like your worst nightmare, the one thing about you which you don't want anyone to know about. Everybody is suddenly exposed to it, and you are, you're seen for what perhaps you are, and you're, you're naked, basically. And at the end of her talk, she basically comes to the conclusion that as human beings, we need to be more compassionate and um, shame people less, which I don't think we've taken that on, really. But, and that's all well and good, and, you know, there's some, there's some weight to that. But ultimately, what we need is someone who can heal us of our shame, who can, who can heal us of our sin, heal us of our guilt, and make us clean again. And as Christians, we, we understand this and we know this, um, but there's still a human tendency for us to run away and hide from God. We run into our own bubbles, don't we? We try to deal with issues ourselves, and we run away from that which could actually help us. So there's pure escapism, right, where we, um, we procrastinate the feelings of guilt that we have away by just simply doing stuff and busying ourselves in activity. The stuff could be good, it could be bad, but it's about keeping busy and running away from our problems. For others, it's about self-improvement. We um, want to become better versions of ourselves to fill in the gaps of all the inadequacies that we may feel inside, so we improve our bodies or improve our minds. Or the big one, or I, see, I see this plastered across the internet all the time, this sort of positive psychology movement, right? Where if you change your mindset, if you change the way you think about yourself and the world, things will suddenly get better. And there's nothing wrong with reminding ourselves about the good aspects of our character or being more positive, but positive psychology, affirmational thinking, all of this only goes so far. It doesn't deal with our guilt. It doesn't deal with our shame. It doesn't deal with our sin. And even sometimes we find ourselves spiraling into greater cycles of darkness in an attempt to run away from our sin. A great example is um, King David in the Old Testament. Um, in Second Samuel, you'll find a story of uh, where David, this powerful man, abuses his power and sleeps with a married woman. Now, for anyone who doesn't know, the Bible isn't very keen on affairs or extramarital um, activity. But out of fear of exposing his weakness, um, or, well, I should actually include the woman falls pregnant, um, and out of fear of exposing his weakness, he arranges for the husband of this woman to be killed in the front lines, in the army, in battle. Now, I guess we probably haven't gone to the same extent that David has done to cover up our sin and shame. But in our own subtle ways, we do the same. And obviously, it must be mentioned with the passage itself, the woman, it's not her own fault that brings her to this um, stage in her life. She's just been dealt with this bleeding condition, and it's ruining her life, and she's at the end of her devices. But what I'm ultimately trying to get at is that our shame, our guilt, our sickness, that so many of us deal with, can only be dealt with in Jesus. Hebrews talks about how we can flee for refuge in Jesus. It's in, it's in his death and resurrection that we find peace. And that he even says, actually, he even promises that if we confess our sins to him and trust him with our shame, he will make us whole. And this is actually what ends up happening with King David. 
after he orchestrates the death of this man, <clears throat> he comes to God, he confesses his sin, and God forgives him after effectively murdering this man. And in the immediate story, the same happens with this woman. She reaches out in faith, and she's healed. She actually ends up having to tell everyone her story um, in the first place. The one thing she didn't want to do, so she's in front of all these men, I'm assuming, surrounding Jesus, and she's telling him this intimate bleeding story. But her story was no longer about her shame. It was no longer about the embarrassment she had felt. It was all about what Jesus had done and all about how he had turned her shame into a display of his grace. Her embarrassment had been turned into joy. Her anxiety and fear had been turned into a confidence in God and hope for the future. God is more powerful than our shame and the experiences that we have maybe um, had dealt to us. And he covers us with his love. Secondly, Jesus has power over death itself. So the second healing um, deals with this directly. Jairus, a synagogue leader, um, he has a daughter, and she's nearly dead. The passage talks about how she's nearly 12, which is like fairly significant because at this period, it's sort of that transition between childhood and adulthood. Um, it's actually not unusual for many girls of the time afterwards to maybe get married soon after. But Mark writes that she's at the point of death. And in verse 35, after Jesus heals the unclean woman, uh, the news is confirmed, your daughter is dead. Now, the death of anyone is um, an awful thing. But the death of your own child, well, that's probably on another level, right? It's, it's beyond imagining. And as you can imagine, the Bible has much to say on the fact which levels all of us, that whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever you've achieved, you're going to die. In Hebrews, um, the writer tells us that humanity is in slavery to the fear of death. And in Romans, it tells us that humanity is also enslaved to sin, and the, the two go together. Our fear of death and sin, they're both really linked. And in Job, in the Old Testament, um, death is actually described as the, the king of terrors. So put simply, put alongside any of your day-to-day -day issues that you face at work, at home, Death is actually the big problem that all human beings face, even if we do not consciously realize it. It's the big obstacle for humanity. And Jeremy touched upon this last week, our, our fear of death, and how we run away from it, how we are adept at presenting it as something distant, and we can address it very briefly and very quickly. Um, and I find this all the time uh, with, with people around me. So in a previous job of mine, I had lunch with a colleague, and we're in the communal area, and she just suddenly opens up about how her best friend at university suddenly died. And it totally changed her university experience and the rest of her life. From that moment onwards, she was, in, she was confronted with that reality that she herself would die at some point, and she wouldn't be able to see her family. And um, this was a big deal for her, and it was always in the back of her mind, and she didn't know what to do with it or how to deal with it. I sort of nervously tried to put forward how, you know, having a faith meant... Um, death wasn't the end, and that there was hope beyond the grave, and there was more to life than this. And I'm not sure even how helpful she found that at the time. But what wasn't helpful was what our culture says, right? Which is, you only live once, um, live for today, forget about tomorrow, um, and death, is, death doesn't matter in the end. And that didn't help her with her fear. That wasn't helping this bubbly, energetic person that I knew deal with one of the deepest issues that we all face. And we actually did a, we did a SALT article earlier this year on the topic, um, in March, 
where we were basically trying to make sense of why do people feel this way towards death? Um, especially, right, logically, for most people who don't believe in God, if God isn't there, um, the death of anyone is just a rearranging of chemicals in the universe, right? Or it's just part of the natural process, just like an animal dying, and you just move on. But I think Jairus' reaction, his despair at his daughter's, uh, well, the prospect of his daughter dying, and how we as human beings react to death indicate that there's something more going on and how we recognize that this isn't how it's supposed to be. This was actually explained quite well by um, Christopher Hitchens, actually, an atheist. Um, And he died from cancer, but shortly before his own death, he talked about the sadness around dying. And he said, um, I'm just quoting him here, uh, he said the sadness around dying was like being told that not just is the party over, but slightly worse, the party's going on, but you're going to have to leave. As much as we might tr- may try to tell ourselves that um, death, is, death is the end and there's nothing more to life than this, none of us want death to actually be the end. So this raises the ultimate question. Um, is there a solution to this? Uh, has death been conquered? Has anyone conquered it? And if so, how can I uh, share in this triumph over life over death? How can I partake in this? And Jesus actually gives us a really clear answer. So in the book of John, there's another similar story about um, Jesus raising someone from the dead. And his name is Lazarus. Um, After Lazarus has died and Jesus has been informed, he makes his way to Bethany where Lazarus lives. And when 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 he's told about Lazarus dying, he says something really strange. He says, my friend hasn't died, he's asleep, and I'm going to wake him up. That's what Jesus says, and people are puzzled by why he's saying this. It's a really strange thing to say in response to somebody dying. Interestingly, he says the same thing about Jairus' daughter. He walks into her home, he finds people wailing, screaming, crying, and he says, why are you all crying? The the girl isn't dead, she's just sleeping. Um, But with Lazarus, everyone's slightly more puzzled because Lazarus has been dead for four days. So this is literally a dead man. When Jesus arrives, he sees Lazarus' sister, Martha, and Martha says, if you had come earlier, he would be better, he would be well. You're too late. Jesus reassures Martha, but then says these words. I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, shall live. He then goes on to do what no one expects. And just like he told Jairus' daughter, Talitha Kumi, little girl, I say to arise, he tells Lazarus to come out of his tomb, and a, dead, a previously dead man emerges from his tomb alive. And with this healing um, of Jairus' daughter and, and Lazarus, I think Jesus is trying to show us that those words, I am the resurrection and the life, those words were true. That there is no life apart from Christ. Beyond that, he was saying that not only... Am I the source, or no, not only do I give life, but I am the source of life. That, life uh, that death has no power over him. And that when Jesus later dies on the cross and he's resurrected, those are the, that's the message he's sending and accomplishing. And you know, our greatest enemy is death itself. And Jesus is saying he has overcome this. But the implications are absolutely huge, not just in, in terms of a historic cosmic level where God enters human history and changes it forever, which is massive, but on a very personal level, in that all our day-to-day issues are at work with our families, 
uh, with our friends, our relationships, with our bodies and with our minds, all the issues we face, all of it is trumped by the fact that God has dealt with death. And if he has dealt with death, everything else comes under his control. And he has us in the palm of his hands. Um, I was thinking the other day about, um, I don't know, like, this is quite weird. I was thinking the other day, obviously, about Bruce Forsyth dying, which is random, I know, but like, he, was, he was quite funny and quite like a big personality uh, for myself. Um, and often, when I, when I talk to people, and um, for, not, for, for, the, for people who are not Christians, there is a real fear of the unknown, not knowing what's going to happen after you, after you die. But I think as Christians, we can take so much confidence from this. Um, that God has conquered death and he has control and authority over our lives and it changes how we do life, it changes how we see life, it even changes the manner in which we end our lives and how we approach death itself. It's really big and I think it means we can trust God. But how do we, how do we respond? How do we engage this for ourselves? How do we em- embrace this? Um, I think firstly we we can run to God, right? We can approach him in confidence and in prayer. Another thing which is so interesting about these stories is that although everything is centered on Jesus, about what he has done, how he has healed these people, um, they're not passive obser- observers, are they? Um, with the unclean woman, she reaches out to Jesus in verse 28, and she says, For if I can just touch him, if I can just touch his garments, I will be made well. She had heard and seen, but she now trusted that God could intervene in her own life as well. Jesus realizes what happens to him, and once all is explained, he says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Uh, Similarly with Jairus, uh, the the news comes in, and the news is confirmed, your daughter is dead. And I think some people actually come up to him and tell him, don't bother bother him anymore. Um, Come home, your daughter is dead. But then Jesus interrupts and says, um, what does he say? He says, don't fear, just believe. Believe that I am who I say I am, that I'm God, and therefore I can give and make life. And I do think this is um, a call to us as Christians to press further into God, to approach God in faith and in prayer for him to change us, for us to be on board with his plans, for him to heal us physically and spiritually. I think we should approach God in prayer as well and in faith. Hebrews talks about how it's impossible to please God without faith. Um, I think it says specifically in chapter 11 that um, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I think Jez was talking about this, um, sorry, Jeremy was talking about this um, last week where he talks about faith, right? Where we, we, we trust that God is good, um, that he has us in his hands and that he has... Um, as a result, we can trust him for the future. It's about trusting who God is. Um, and I think we see this pattern in the Bible, right, of people interacting with God um, in faith and him responding to their faith over specific circumstances. From Abraham and Moses at the beginning of the Bible all the way up until now, we find this story of people trusting God and God acting. God's obviously sovereign and he does what he wants, but I think he responds to faith. And we see this in the Bible. And while this um, interaction with God can be very instantaneous and 
immediate as we see with the unclean woman. I think what's probably just as important is for us to consistently draw near to God day in, day out, which is probably less spectacular than what we've been reading about, but is just as important. Um, there's this theologian called J.R. Packer, and he writes about um, a group of Christians called the Puritans. And these were like a, a group of guys um, and girls uh, 300 years ago who were really concerned about practical devotion to God. And they, were, they made it their mission to, like, in every aspect of their lives, revolve their lives around God. And they were so keen about this, they called this thing, uh, they called it communion with God, that there wouldn't simply be a focus on, like, momentary, one off mountaintop experiences but a day-in, day-out consistent walk, which is obviously hard, and it's a lot tougher um, than what we've been reading about. But it's so, cru- but it's so crucial. And I think it's crucial because the biggest change we'll see in our lives is often um, won't be the mountaintop experiences. I mean, next week, I think some of us are going to David's tent, which is like uh, three or four days of just like non-stop worship. Everything's put aside, and we can just focus on God, and that's amazing. But often, the biggest change we'll see in our lives will be uh, on a Monday morning when we have to decide whether to um, follow God or go our own way. And that will dictate the rest of the week, won't it? Um, And I think I talked about earlier how healing isn't the main point, but I think healing is a transformative thing that happens over a lifetime and not simply um, in one-off moments. But... uh, with all that being said, I'm well aware of how some people could turn around to me and um, possibly say, in relation to healing itself, um, you know, I, I, I've prayed to God in the past and he didn't actually come through for me. Or um, we prayed for that family member who was really ill and they ended up dying. Um, where was God then? And obviously God doesn't answer every prayer for healing. And it's really tough because as human beings, we're not always going to have the answer. Um, and that's really hard to take. But I think what's really important is when we look at the cross, the place where God makes that ultimate sacrifice for us, where, and it's that ultimate picture of healing and where all healing really flows from, I think we can trust that God is good and his character can be trusted, and that we can trust in his wisdom and that he has us in his hands. So a great example of this is Paul in... Um, the Corinthians, or in the Corinthians, it's the the letter of Corinthians, he's writing a a letter to the church in Corinth, and he's saying all sorts of things, but amongst it, he mentions something really personal, and he talks about the thorn in his flesh. Now, nobody really knows what he's talking about. It's been debated for centuries. He could be talking about a psychological affliction, emotional, physical, nobody, it could even be a person that's really tormenting him. We don't know, but it's causing him a lot of harm, and um, he prays to God three times for it to be taken away. God doesn't actually do that. He's left of this thorn in his flesh. But God does say this to him. Um, God says that his grace would be sufficient for Paul and that in Paul's weakness, God's power would be made perfect. Now, you can all imagine, Paul is probably someone who had a fairly successful prayer life, right? From the moment um, he's converted on the Damascus Road up until this point, he's been shipwrecked, he's been persecuted, he's been beaten up, he's been flogged. Parts of the Jewish community have turned away from him. He's gone without food sometimes. And you can imagine through all, the, all of those experiences, he's probably been praying to God and God's been faithful to him. And the fruit of that we can see right in his writings, like God is there with him day in, day out. And that's why he can talk about having this union with God and God being so close to him all the time. But in this intimate area of weakness, um, 
God obviously didn't answer in the way Paul expected or the, or the way Paul wanted. Yet, God was still Lord overall, right? And it wasn't a denial of God's healing power in Paul's life. Um, where he's turned from this hateful murderer uh, who, who's essentially killing Christians to somebody now who loves people to such an extent he wants the whole world to know about Jesus. God was still faithful to Paul. Um, he'll be faithful to us in the good times and the bad as well. And um, if you're a Christian here, um, I think this passage should remind us of how we've been taken from a place of um, death to life, like Jairus' daughter, right? Where our lives have been transformed by the power of God's love and our lives are totally different as a result. And God's authority over our sicknesses and over our, our eventual deaths is something we can actually rejoice in and have a lot of hope in. Um, for people who are perhaps struggling in sin, doing things that they don't want to do but continue doing, I think we can take hope that God could take away the shame in our lives and the disgraces that we may have experienced. Um, and I think for some of us who are dealing with physical ailments, I think we should actually go to God and pray to him and ask him to heal us. Um, and I think we should approach God in prayer. But even if like, nothing particularly happens as a result, I don't think our trust in God should diminish, right? Because as we can see, if we draw near to God, none of us will ever be disappointed. And we'll always find a home in him. And um, I think, look, if you're not a Christian and you're wondering, what's this all about and what have I been talking about? Um, I think we're going to take communion now and I think Luke's going to take over. But communion's a very physical reminder of a physical act in history where God enters our world in real time, dies a death we should die so that we can now live. And it means everything I've just spoken about becomes possible. And it becomes possible for me. It becomes possible for you where you can be transformed by God's love and you can know him um, not only as healer, uh, but as father as well. Um, I'll just pray now before we take communion. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for your authority over sickness and death. Thank you that you have us in your hands. Thank you, Lord, that we do not have to despair at death or fear it, but we can take hope in the future that death is not the end, that there is life beyond the grave, and that you have died in our place. Thank you, Lord, for the hand in our lives. Lord, I pray for anyone now who is actually sick, um, physically, spiritually, that, Lord, you would come and heal them. Lord, I pray for your will to be done in our lives. I pray for your glory to be shown in London through us. And that, Lord, as we go out this week, we can go out of a confidence, Lord, knowing that you have us and that you are close to us. And that if we draw close to you, Lord, you will embrace us and you will not tell us away. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.